Wonderful intro, uh, great work uh, by Colin Towns. Uh, it's just Dylan really makes it go somewhere by using a lot of echo on it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the brains again. You know, you're on the rocks with damaged brains. Oh you know, yeah. A, yeah, a lot, a lot of that song, I think, is I wrote kind of a song like that once, uh, talking about how corporations use you and spit you out when you're an old and broken man. Mm. And he talks about that here, uh, you know, like a forced retirement. Yes. Well, mm. not just retirement. Yeah. Forced retirement, firing, uh, cutting, you know, cuts, uh, yeah. you know, a, a, a lot downsizing. We've all been through that. I remember uh, in the nineties working at a big Canadian corporation, which I shall not name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, the the uh, fad back then was downsizing, you know, mm-hmm. trying to do more with uh, less people, and everybody was burning out. Uh, I went through two burnouts, uh, you know, and then they fired me. Mm-hmm. So you know that inspired me to do that kind of song, mm-hmm. and you know it, it's kind of the same thing here. Like uh, once you were a working man, now you're on the rocks with broken hands. I think that's you know. Oh yeah. I don't know why I, I, yeah, that makes absolute sense to me now that you're saying that. I had just never seen it in that light before. And, and that's something I think a lot of people can identify with because in, in my industry, I've been laid off, I think three or four times now over the last 20 years. Um, no. it's, it's, it, you feel like it's a personal attack on you because they're keeping other people and not you. But, a lot of times maybe you've been there longer, maybe you negotiated a better salary and they're like, well, if I got to cut this person or that person, they're making more money. So they're the one that's going to go. And then there's the fear of when am I going to find another job? I mean, there's so much attached to that. Of course. It's it's like a a scar on you every time that happens. So right here, he's also talking about poverty because the the consequences of you losing your job is poverty. Mm -hmm. And if you have a family, and they suddenly can't eat. They'll play in the street and cry with glass on their feet. There you go. And, you know, you, then you become mentally insane or alcoholic. And then they send you to an institution. And, you know, you were a proud person. And now you're on the rocks with broken wings. That's the way I see it. Once you were proud to be a man, you know, right. carried out your own tiny part of the plan. You were a cog in the wheel, but you were still proud of your work. Yeah. You know? And it's so identifiable because I think most people that have jobs have felt overused, underpaid, you know, I'm, I'm just a statistic or I'm just here to serve a purpose. I'm not really building for myself because I'm, I'm helpless to whatever their whims are. Yes, that is a good part of it. But at least like in the work I, I've done, like I've worked in music stores and now the work I, I work uh, at the pressing uh that's something that I think is very valorizing because you're helping other bands get their out, you know. So you can see it that way. I like my job, and you know, it's it's. But I will re- retire eventually. Oh fairly, sure. Next couple of years, I would say. 
I would say my my favorite job that I've ever had was working at a, a chain of music stores in Colorado. And, uh, you know, when I worked in the store before I moved up to the corporate office and started running the warehouse, uh, it was it was a, such a thrill to see some young kid come in with his mom and getting his first guitar or, you know, being like trying to not have volume while he's testing out a guitar because he's afraid of people hearing him play. And, you know, it, it just that joy of thinking back to when I got my first drum set or I used to go into the music store and dream about this Pearl drum set that I really wanted and didn't have enough money for it yet. And I, there, there's such a joy about helping musicians get to any stage in their career, whether it's releasing music or helping them get started. That is untouchable to me. But that that's fun because like I did the reverse of you. I started out by being the warehouse manager. Oh, assistant warehouse manager. Mm-hmm. When I was 17, there's a whole story behind this. I don't know if you have time. Sure. When I was a kid, 12 years old, and I said, yeah, I wanted to buy this guitar, that guitar, I didn't have money, you know, and uh, so it was a Steve's music store, and you know, I used to joke around with the guys there, you know, at 12, 1969, that kind of thing, and uh, I said to Steve one day, you know, the owner, I said, hey, one day I'm going to work for you. Uh, he goes, okay, when you're ready, come see me. So here I am, 17, like five years later, I go up to him, I said, Hey, Steve, you remember you told me you would give me a job when I was ready? I'm ready. He goes, okay, you start Monday. Just like that? Just like that. Wow. I, I absolutely love that. That's one of those you know, mindset things, right? You, you put your mind towards something. You put your energy to it. You just expect it's going to happen. And then you take the action to make it happen. And there it is. Because what are the chances he had room for you at that time? Yeah, well, he, he looks like he did. And... and this job, this present job, uh, like the, the, the owner was like my friend because she'd come to audition, but that didn't work out. She, she says, I'm going to keep following your career, the owner of this pressing plant. And uh, she used to say, oh, do you want to come work with us? And I would say, nah, it's too far. And and one day I said, okay. <laughs> That's when I started working there. Nice. So wasn't begging for that job, but I ended up really liking it. Now, do you guys actually press LPs in that facility? Uh, we press CDs, we make cassettes, and we uh, outsource the LPs. Oh, yeah. it's. It, I know that I think there's only a couple of plants in the world that make LPs these days, and, and the challenge with those is that they're just so expensive to ship. Well, uh, we're lucky because one of the pressing plants, like uh, we've worked with them for many, many years, and they're right next to in a couple of cities over. Mm-hmm. So shipping is not too expensive it is for the, it is for the final client but it isn't for for us from the client right uh, did these guys like uh why we choose them they're a bit more expensive than maybe some other plants but their quality is like uh they, they call it 95 percent quality wow which is more than any other plant that i know mm-hmm. and the problem with uh pressing plants is there are more clients than pressing plants. So it's not. So when a uh, name decides to do 20,000 colored vinyls, that's it. He holds up production for everybody else for months. Right, exactly. And, and you know, with this big resurgence in vinyl, uh, I have a used record store that, well, they, they sell new and used records and movies and, and things. And uh, they just opened up down the street from me. So I went over there a couple weeks ago and, uh, 
Deep Purple's second album, Book of Taliesin, was sitting in the in the rack, and I thought, oh wow, somebody somebody got rid of their their copy of Book of Taliesin. No, it was a new, brand new copy. They've actually reissued that, and I thought that is so obscure. In a wow. time when they're they're limited on what they can press, or, you know that's a really obscure album to take the time to press. If I remember correctly, uh, there was a video recently by Jack White saying, "Come on, uh, like uh, big record labels, please reopen your pressing plants. We got nowhere to go." Yeah. Well, yes, that was by Jack White. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that'll happen because this this resurgence is pretty pretty amazing. Yes, it's super expensive. Yeah. If you're a beginning band, you better have a good uh, public funding there going. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, there's there's things you can do like, you know, crowdfunding and that. But man, you're you're going to pay for it for sure if you if you go. Because I, I thought it would be really neat to at least have one of my albums on vinyl, you know. Uh, and then as soon as I looked at the pricing, I went, well, um, no, <laughs> I'm going to have to live without that for a while. Yeah. So that uh, going back to uh, On the Rocks, I think that's the masterpiece of the album. Yeah, I, I would agree. And for just from a musical standpoint, it takes you on such a, a journey. There's so many different parts and it changes tempos. And it's a really powerful, even without the, the lyrics, it's a powerful piece of music. And adding those lyrics too, which are hugely powerful. Yeah. And, and Ian's voice on this one, he's really singing hard. Yes. I mean, he's got so much passion in his voice on this one. And uh, and it's interesting because following into the next song, which is going back into just a gentle blues, uh, it, it's, it really, I think, packs an even bigger punch because it does, the, the album doesn't continue with that voice. It goes soft. Such a not gentle blues, trust me. Keep <laughs> the lyrics. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, as far, as far as his singing style. Yeah, it's it's soft and menacing. Yes, yes. And that was very scary. That would be a song called If You Believe, uh, If You Believe Me. And this is, I, I love because he does get kind of gritty and almost sarcastic as a vocalist in this song. Yeah, but I think it, it's more of a, a display of his power in the low range. Mm-hmm. It's everybody thinks of Ian as a screamer, but if, if he goes in the low range, like if that kill you part, uh, okay. That is something. And I think this this style that he, he used, a couple of the styles on this album, really kind of led to the way he would sing on Born Again with Black Sabbath, because I'm seeing some hints of, of that growlish, raspy sound that he used on that album, on this album here. 
Yeah, I think what happened is uh, shortly, uh, a year or two after this album, uh, he had to have an operation because his voice was, was getting uh, damaged. Mm-hmm. So when he came back with Sabbath, he was back at like over full force. You know, so. Yeah, and just probably just dying to get back on stage and get stuff recorded to to perform. Uh, it's it, as as you know, as somebody who's played on stage, when you're forced to not be able to do that job, when that is your your joy, you know that feedback from the crowd. Uh, it's it's almost just it just tears your soul out. Yeah, apparently uh, he was so drunk he didn't know he joined Black Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard until his manager called him the next day, uh, really upset. Why don't you let me know next time you join Black Sabbath? <laughs> yeah, you know, and that that is rock and roll right there. He, he's, he's meeting with friends, they're having some drinks, he gets so drunk he joins the band. I mean, that is the epitome of a rock and roll story. Yeah, definitely. And then he continues with Trashed on the, on the Sabbath album, right. which is total drunkenness and, you know. Well, the, and 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 that the whole story of that album being made is is rock and roll to the hilt, you know, yeah. driving cars into pools, flipping them over, almost dying because you lit a cigarette while the cars got a gas leak, uh, blowing blowing up the tent that the singer's in with fireworks. I mean, every like they could have done a whole movie similar to Spinal Tap just on the making of that album. Having the vicar of the. Uh... The parish next door come and say, "Hey, you guys are too loud. Can you tone it down so we can have choir practice?" And and he's sheepily apologizing, and then he writes, "Disturbing the priest." <laughs> right, and they went to dinner with them out after that too, which was great. Yeah, so, yeah. Now, now, of course, the midget, uh, the midget falling off of the the Stonehenge model that was that was probably the best of all of it. But the Stonehenge in meters instead of feet or something. Yeah, and, and they and somebody had moved the mattress he was supposed to fall on, so he fell on the ground. Yeah. Oh, he hurt himself already. Yeah. So I mean, I hope he's okay. I, I don't know what happened to him after that, but uh, yeah, not not fun, but certainly a rock and roll story if there ever was one. And then the the story of you know he didn't quite know the lyrics yet, so he had them all on sheets of paper. Yeah. And some dry ice comes on, and he's laughing helplessly because he can't read the lyrics. Yeah, and, and I remember him saying that he had a really hard time identifying with with the way that Ozzy wrote. So it was really so that's why he couldn't memorize them is because it just they just weren't sinking in with him. Yeah. So anyway, it was epic rock and roll. The whole, it, you know, it, yeah, it really was. I saw that tour, saw that tour and uh, I had kind of what do you call a mental disconnect when they played "Smoke on the Water," and I thought, okay, what's going on here? I, I heard that from from people that were on, that went on that tour. They they said it was just really weird. To, like they understood why they did it, but it just seemed a really odd encore for a band to do a song by another band. Like you would do one of your own songs as an encore. Um, I think so. Yeah, uh, but uh, it, it, I'm sure it was a darker version of "Smoke on the Water," just based yeah. on Tony Iommi's sound alone. Yeah, it yeah. Was. Fantastic player, by the way. I, I I love his sound. I think he's a very creative riff writer. I think he's the creator of heavy metal as it is, mm-hmm. especially of doom metal. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And that's really the category that we fall into, isn't it? Uh, some of it. Yeah. He created doom metal on Master of Reality, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'm grateful that, that Ian got drunk and joined for that one album because I think it was fantastic. I don't think Perfect Strangers would have been the same had he not done that tour. 
yeah. you know, everything, everything that you do leads to how the next thing is done and the thing after that. So it was in a, a very important time for Ian in his career. You know that uh, when uh, at one point Richie Blackmore asked Gillen to front Rainbow. Yeah, he uh, he joined him on stage at a Gillen show. Yeah, and then he uh, asked him if he wanted to join Rainbow, to which uh, Ian promptly said, "No, thank you." <laughs> but but he invited him to join Gillen, didn't he? Something like that. They both invited each other. I know he invited Ian to join Rainbow. And it's just at today, actually. It's it's just amazing because you couldn't you couldn't keep those two in the same room. I mean, they didn't speak once during the entire who do you, who do you think we are sessions, and yet here they're like, ah, let's do this again. Yeah, and then uh, of course there was that show. What was it in, in Stockholm or something where Richie they started Highway Star and Richie didn't go on stage until his solo or something, and they were just yeah. The that that uh if you guys want to check that out it's it's kind of a sad th- i don't know why it was released to be honest but uh that would be the come hell or high water dvd or or audio uh that you can get it's it's a really bizarre show it was one of the last shows that richie played uh, i think yeah. it was like two away from his final show with purple and it's just it's awkward in a in a lot of spaces and you kind of feel for the rest of the guys because they they John Lord even said I had to work so bloody hard that night to yeah. to just keep my energy up and keep it keep the show going uh, just because there was such a displacement in the band. And it, it was so nice when Satriani came in, you know, and it's like, and then Steve Morse, of course, you know, R- Richie is still moody or not, he's one of the grandmasters, you know, one yeah. of the creators of hard rock. So absolutely, and and you know. Uh, he, he might be moody. He might be, uh, different in personality from most people, but I'll tell you what, as far as musicians go, I think he's, he's done so much for the world of rock music and, and now, uh, you know, minstrel type stuff. Uh, you could never say it it wouldn't be worth a chance to play with him. Yeah. I mean, like, actually I got an anecdote with Blackmore as well. Ah. So uh, it was a rainbow show in Montreal, '76, and uh, like like you said earlier, we we all went the back alley after the show, mm-hmm. and, and Richie hadn't done an encore. They said he'd broken a finger or something. So, but they all came out except Cozy in the alley after the show. So I got to meet them all, and I'm talking to Richie. I said, "How's your finger?" Oh, "What's my fingers nothing. <laughs> and and then he signs an autograph for me, and, and he was smiling. It was nice. And, and then I said, oh, this autograph is shit. I'll sign you another one. So, you know, he was uh, conscientious about, you know, his public relations. Wow. That way. Was this uh, on the Long Live Rock and Roll Tour, or would this have been Down to Earth? Uh, that was the Rising Tour. Oh, Rising. Okay. Oh, wow. So that was that was pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah, I don't Rising was out actually interesting so with uh, max webster another great band that david stone played in by the mm-hmm. way. that's right yeah i've heard some of that stuff and uh there's a great video on youtube of him playing with max that just it just blew my mind that is a killer video yeah i mean I live in munich that's a great rainbow video mm-hmm. but that max webster video that's dave at his finest yeah he was on fire that night for sure yeah 
Sure. Well, getting back to Glory Road, uh, If You Believe Me is kind of an, an interesting song. There's some really, really like, I, I don't know, emotional guitar work. How would you describe it? I think that uh, Earn just is very, very tasteful in that. They all are. Uh, I, I like what McCoy does with the bass, too, at one point. It's a boom, you know, he goes. <laughs> just nice. Yeah. And, and again, a, a very emotional uh, lyric from Ian is he's he's just in top form on this whole album, I think. Yeah, I think that's why I'm, I I know the other albums barely. I don't really listen to them, the Gillen albums, but this one I've listened a lot to over the years. Same here. Like I, I know a couple songs off of each of the others, but this is the one that I, well, this and Gillen's in, I think are the ones that I keep going back to more than anything else. Yeah, my wife is Mr. Universe. She likes the best. Yeah, that, that's a good album. That's a good album. But it, that would probably be third, I think, on my list. Um. Now, our our next song really brings the energy back uh, before we hit our final track on the album, which is is definitely a very different en- en- energy on that. Yeah. But uh, "Run and White Face City Boy," this is is like the it's like going back to the first song on Chain Your Brain. It's it's just it's a hard driving song, and yes. it's it's just you're you're in it for the ride. That's the second one I think is a precursor of Norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. It's all about inner city and gangs, and you know, it's very interesting. It, it's another kind of life on the edge song, though. Yes, yeah. So it, it really does stick with that theme. Um, I love the the guitar riff on this. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it, it, another one that, as a non guitar player, seems like it would be very difficult to play just because of the speed of it. But it's probably not. Um, what I, I love the sound of the guitar on this one, though. Well, I overall the entire album, I think Bernie just kills it. Yeah, like, uh, it, it's. It's a, a lesson in expressive guitar playing. Mm, very well put. I, I love that he plays that in that riff that that little that run in the mid range instead of lower. You know, because I think most like heavy guitar players or, or hard rock guitar players would probably play that all low and try to make it sound as heavy as possible. I like that he went in a different direction. I think it's pure hard rock. Yeah, hard rock is more mid-range, whereas, uh, you know, metal or doom is more low-range. Yeah, I, I, so I would say a guy like Tony Iommi would probably have played this an octave lower. Yes, absolutely. But this, the way he plays it, he would play it in the same range as, say, as Blackmore or as uh, Michael Schenker or those guys, you know, hard rockers. Yeah. Oh, Michael Schenker, there's another great guitarist for you. 
Absolutely. I, I got to see him at uh, Michael Schenker Fest, and uh, he had all his singers with him. Graham was there. Uh, Macaulay was there. Uh, it, it was it was an amazing, amazing show. Definitely a huge fan of Michael. Um, but yeah, Running White Face City Boy well, is a great uh, song. One of my favorite bands, especially that live album, Just Deadly Strangers mm. in the Night. Yes. Yes, absolutely killer. Uh, so this like the same kind of thing that mm-hmm. Bernie is here, you know? Yeah. It just tears it, tears this song. It's a fast song. It's uh, like he, he talks about, you know, running and it, the rhythm is perfect in a running. White face, city boy, you know? It's the music kind of gets you almost like you're running along with them. I mean, it's very fast paced. You don't really have time to think about what you're hearing because it's moving so fast. You're just trying to soak it all in. So you kind of get the feeling like you're running along with this person. I think like he, he actually ended up accidentally in the wrong part of town, you know, and Mm -hmm. now he's very scared. So he's trying to run away. Yes. That's what I see. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, but a very energetic song. And I, I think that the, the coolest thing about it is is that part where normally I don't like this in a song where they just break it down and you just hear the drums and a vocal and then they'll bring in another instrument. It's like that's it's been so overdone. But in this song, it really works where they just drop it out and there's the drums just have this perfect reverb on them. And it just it just really kind of makes you feel like okay, now even the stuff I'm familiar with is gone. I'm lost in the area. I'm trying to get somewhere safe. It really kind of brings about the story a little bit more for me on this. Yeah, I got to agree with that. It feels there like an empty city street and you're all by yourself, you know, and it's highlighted by less instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost like a, an isolation in the middle of danger. Yes. Yeah, very well done. And I, I think that's some of Bernie's best playing on this album is this song. Yeah, I, I still think it's uh, a little earlier there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, definitely through the whole album, for sure. Yeah, know. like, again, intro, and uh, of course, No Easy Way, and Sleeping on the Job is great. I don't know, they're all great. You know? They really are. Uh, our final track on this album is, boy, this is, a, this is a test for musicians in patience and focus, because... Yeah. The tempo is so low. It's hard to play that slow. Yeah, it is slow. It's like a total uh, change from the song before. Yeah, and that's that's what I was alluding to earlier, you know, when we started talking about Running White Face City Boy, was that Nervous is just the the opposite of it. It is incredibly dramatic. Even though the the riff is kind of intricate, 
but it's still it's still slow and for as a drummer i can say it's very hard to keep this tempo going at this pace without just the tendency to speed it up a little well underwood is really a professional yeah yeah absolutely Uh, album is spot on yeah, very great drummer. And and I have actually a, a question about him for you that, I, that I'm going to get to in a minute. But as if all that wasn't enough, there's a beautiful keyboard part over the top of the guitars. Uh, and, and in the middle of this patience is just complete chaos coming from Ian. He he sounds like he's going to completely destroy his voice with yeah. how how he just, he's not screaming, he's not yelling, he's grinding. Yeah, it's it's something. Eh? It it really is, and it's so powerful. And and the lyrics are amazing. I I love the last verse. I really believed you when you said you try to help, but now I'm looking right through you, and you only helped yourself. And I think, boy, how many times in life do we see that? That sounds like uh, conservative politicians. Yes, yes. It, and and I'm sure with a lot of people that try to latch on him. Uh, because of who he is in in music, they think that oh, you know, if I if I buddy up to him, he can help me with my career because he's a superstar. I'm sure there's a lot of that kind of stuff that that has gone on over the years. Well, he's been really kind to me. I mean, he put a link to Eric Matches on his site. You know? Oh, did he? Yeah, go look. Oh, Muso. wow. Yeah, links, musos, Eric Patches, hard rock. That okay. I'm gonna have to look. That is awesome. I, yeah. I never thought I would be associated with Ian Gillen in any way in my life. I don't think I asked him to do that. That was so long ago. That's how he would do that. I mean, he's he's a very considerate person, it seems. Well, I mean, like two two tours in a row, making sure he would meet Gillen and the family, you know, like before the show, just me and us and him, you know, twice. That's something. That really is. That really is cool. Yes, he can greet, and but he, for us, he made two exceptions. Yeah, I noticed that he he doesn't do those anymore, and uh, I understand his reasons why. Especially now, you kind of can't blame anybody for not doing meet and greets with the you know with COVID and all. But but it does it does make it hard to to meet him. Whereas some of the other guys, like when I when I went to the meet and greet on the abandoned tour, uh, Steve came out and Roger came out. I didn't meet Steve that night because. I sat next to his cousins at the show and they were talking to him at the meet and greet. And I thought, I don't, you know, he's with family. I don't want to bother him. He had just gotten married. Um, but he looked over at me and he waved at me and I waved back, but I didn't, I didn't want to go talk to him only because of that. I did get to meet him a, a few years ago, uh, at the NAM show, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a delicate thing because you do want to meet these people, but you can't blame them for not engaging sometimes. Cause I remember like, uh, when Don played with on our thing, I said, "Okay, Don, we're gonna like take you out to lunch to say thank you." You know, I said, "Great!" And but we all have catering that night, you know, at the, at the purple show, mm-hmm. so we weren't hungry. So Don said, "Well, just come to the hotel and let's uh, buy me a drink, right?" And I said, "Okay." So we went to the hotel, bought him a drink, and Ian Pace was sitting next to us, and he looked, you know, quietly drinking. I said, "Let's not bother," and we didn't. We just said good night, Ian, when he left, and that was that. Wow. You you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Uh, my question for you, this, this goes back to, uh, Ian joining deep purple. It's, it's interesting to me that Richie, 
uh, was talking to Mick Underwood and said, hey, I'm looking for a singer if you know anybody. And Mick offers up the singer in his own band. Yeah, really. I always thought that was a weird thing to do. And his bass player. Yeah, and his bass. Well, yeah. That, why would you say, I don't, I don't, I want my band to break up, have half of our band, you know, have a third of our band? That was very strange, but I guess it came back because, like, uh, Ian hired Mick and, you know, mm-hmm. so, and Roger has uh, been with uh, Blackmore and Rainbow as well, you know, so. Yeah, I, I remember uh, when I met Roger, I asked him, I said, you know, it's, it was really weird to me once I learned the, the whole story of what happened at, at the end of your time in, in Purple Mark II. It was really interesting for me that you went back to work with Richie and he, he just smiled and said, well, when you need a job, you go to your friends. There you go. Yeah, that that does make sense. But I mean, it was it was a much more organic process because he wasn't supposed to be joining the band. He was just going to produce Down to Earth. Right. And then ended up just joining. And I saw the show on that tour and they got wiped out by Scorpions. Really? Yeah. They got uh, <laughs> Scorpions just blew them off the stage. Wow. Well, the Scorpions were at the top of their game back then, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, like. Athea's job is a great guitar player, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. When I, when I saw uh, Dio, the Scorpions, and Purple, and that would have been, that must have been on the Rapture of the Deep tour. And the Scorpions, they, they didn't sound that well that night. I think Klaus might have been a little bit on the, on the sick side, but they had a six-tier drum riser. And on the front of the drum riser were just blinding white lights that they kept flashing right into the crowd. And it was the most annoying thing. And I thought, how have you guys done so many tours and nobody thought this was a bad idea? <laughs> uh, but, it was, but it was a great show. I mean, getting that was the only time I got to see Ronnie James Dio. So that was that in and of itself was just a complete joy. And, uh, of course, Rapture of the Deep was such a, a great uh, tour. They did That was the first time I heard Well-Dressed Guitar, which was fantastic. Yes. Um, I, I've, there's, there's no such thing to me as a bad Purple show. I don't care what goes on. I'm going to enjoy it. The worst Purple show I ever saw was when uh, Ian had a broken foot. It was Ottawa 2012. Mm. And he had to rest a lot. So they jammed a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was good. It was purple, but it was not top game. Yeah, that's a shame. The show I saw was not 72 or 85 or anything like that. Those were great, but it was 2011 uh, with a 30-piece orchestra and a 2,000-year-old Roman arena in Vienne, France, under oh. the star. Me and my wife were like, we were in rapture. We saw that. Oh, for sure. I did see that tour. Uh, I was not. I was living in Phoenix at the time. They weren't playing in Phoenix, so I drove up to Vegas to see that show here in a really nice theater at the Palms. Uh, it was the Pearl Theater at the Palms Hotel, and with the orchestra, some of my friends uh, that I would meet later in life uh, actually played with Purple on that on that show. Nice. And they and they said they were nothing but the nicest people. Oh, they are. I, I mean, I, I remember seeing them in 2011 twice because I saw them also with the 30-piece orchestra at Place des Arts, which is like a, a, a concert place for classical concerts. The sound was great, but it seemed a bit lifeless. 
you know. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the playing, the sound was great, but yeah. it was maybe too too great, too clean. Oh yeah. So you didn't have good echo or reverb or anything. And that's so important for a live show. It really it has to feel alive, you know. Day, you know those two shows in 2011. Very interesting. Well, I you know I. Getting back to Glory Road, I just love this album. I could not tell you how many times I've listened to it, how many times I burnt my voice out trying to sing Nervous. <laughs> yeah, really. and, and doing a terrible job, mind you, but that wouldn't stop me. Uh, but there are some real gems on this album. I think that, that the writing at this point was fantastic. I, I wish we could have seen a, a follow-up album that matched it. Um, but I think I think Ian's career went in such a great direction, going to Black Sabbath and then going on to to yeah. reform Purple. Um, I, I can't I can't be upset at anything that's happened that he's put out in his career because everything that he's done, like I said, has led to every other thing. That is true. It's like a path that meanders around but gets there. Exactly, exactly. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for hanging out with me for for so long and and talking about, you know, Gillen and Purple and talking about these songs. It's been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome anytime, man. And uh, so I'll I'll just plug our band a little bit. Era Patches, we are working on our new album. This is the first one that I've done with the band, which I'm so excited about. Uh, I fell in love with this band when I met you guys after you did Water Dog and I interviewed you and Michelle and David Stone uh, and and just have been all in. Uh, Jerry asked me to play on a song and I said, sure, you know, if, if you like it, great. And if you don't, well, I, I appreciate the offer and you you liked it. I loved it. And then it was another one and then it was another one. And you said, hey, why don't you just join the band? <laughs> Which, of course, I said, yes. But it, it, it's an honor to me to work with such talented musicians. I mean, I, I love the music. Uh, I love the direction of the new album. And I, I'm i really looking forward to us knocking it out and hopefully getting it out this year. You know, and even Dave said it's going to be like a, a killer album. You know, we, we, we met earlier this year. We spent the day together just discussing the band and music and all sorts of things, checking in the sites as well in Toronto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I brought my son Dylan, and he was all agog to to hang out with with Dave and and Dave's son Jordan, a really nice guy too. It's a PR person, so oh wow, very fun. Yeah, I saw I saw pictures of you guys uh, that you guys had posted about hanging out together, and I thought, man, if, if I could be a fly on the wall, I bet that would be a, a fun conversation. Just you two hanging out, talking music. Yeah, and I, I even got recorded uh, his version of how uh, Gates of Babylon came about, which was interesting. I don't know if you saw the video. I did. I was so fat. I was riveted just listening to the detail of it all. Yeah, we were sitting in an outdoor terrace because nobody could go indoor because of uh, COVID. So they set out an outdoor terrace with a tent over it and Brazero's fire burning inside to make people warm. This was in the middle of winter. It was so cool. I mean, in in the middle of winter in Montreal. Oh, this was in Toronto. Oh, that was in Toronto. Yeah, that's right. It was still a very cold place. Yeah. So it, it was such a fantastic day, you know. And you got really good audio for being in an open cafe. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I just turned on the phone and there we went. Yeah. And, and, and listening to David tell that story, it's it's just amazing. I mean, 
you know, getting to work with with you guys has just been such a thrill. And then I'll find out, oh, we have a, another guest star, which is another famous, you know, keyboard player or whatever. It, it's it, this out this this whole trip with this band has been absolutely amazing. And and again, I I can't thank you enough for having me be a part of it. It's every moment of it has been just pure joy. Oh, welcome. And with Derek, what happened is that uh, about three years ago, uh, this ties into David too. We were making. Uh, a song called Order of the Emperor Queen, which is the first song on Paradox of Denial. And uh, I, I actually asked Derek uh, if he would consider playing on it. And he said, uh, okay, I'll send you a demo if you like it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he sent me the demo and it was just fast and furious like Derek is. But it, it was too expensive for me at the time. And then I sent it to David and David did it. So that's how David, you know, did his first recording with us. Oh. And then lately, you know, David's been really busy. So I asked Derek, he goes, yes, is it ready? Send it to me. So that's what happened. And in two hours, he did that and then sent it back to me. No, all those layers? All those layers. Two hours. Wow. The, the public hasn't heard it, but I have. And I can say he he did an absolutely fantastic job. He took the song... It, it just to to a different level. Yeah, well, that's what Dave does too, all the time. Yes, so. and, and it's it's been interesting too. Like it's it's a weird situation because we're not writing songs in the same room together. We're doing everything remote, and it, it, it's a much different process from what I'm used to. And I realize, like, I'm the second person typically to play on most of the songs, so I get just the guitar, and I think. Well, I could I could really influence the song because if I do something half time or double time or double bass or or you know whatever, I'm really shaping this song. Exactly. And then then I'll get another version of the song where the bass has been added or Dave's added his keyboards or violin's been added and I'm like, "Okay, they really shaped this song." It's it's just such a, a weird thing to see the individual collaboration because normally we get it all at the same time. I think this is even better for writing. Mhm. Personally, I mean, I've done both, and you get great songs playing live together or at the same time, definitely. But like you said, you can't really shape them, take the time and go, okay, let me try this, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I'll do that where I'll record a part and go, okay, I, I like that, but let me try it this other way. And maybe I'll like that better. And then in the middle of that, I'll find a third thing to do, and that'll be the one I go with. Yeah. Exactly. But you can't really do that when you're with the band because you've got to just keep the time and be there and let them develop their parts. It's it's a really different world. But I, I do think this works well if you're open to do it this way. Because like when I write the guitars, it's the same thing. I have, you know, the DAW and then I'll, I'll put a, a, a tempo on it. I'll put a time signature, whatever. And I'll take it from there. Mm-hmm. It's a fresh start. Sometimes I'll have a melody already, like, coming out of a dream even like groove upon was coming out of a dream uh great song the green fairy was coming out of a dream so i recorded them with my mouth waking up you know kind of thing and then i i played them you know okay time signature is this and this but many times i go okay what could i do that would be interesting you know and start an intro and then go on to something else to the point that when the song is finished and if i want to play it live i have to to learn it I do that all the time. I, you know, I'll come up with a rhythm or a melody, and the first thing I do is just grab my voice recorder and get it down before I forget it. For uh, Green Fairy, that was special because uh, I got lucky in my bad luck because the first time I came out of a dream with it, I didn't, and I totally forgot it. 
the next one, I woke up with the song again. I go, okay, this time I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not missing out on that. Uh, the other thing I'll say before before we wrap this up is I, you know, I, I was talking to you about this before we started recording. And one thing that I love about you is that you're very open to the changes as they go on. So when other people add their parts, sometimes you'll come back and go, you know what, now that I've heard this, I don't like my solo or I don't like the way I played this rhythm. I'm going to re-record it now that those other components are there because you start seeing the song through a different set of eyes. Absolutely. I don't do it that often, mm-hmm. but I do do it when I hear something. I go, okay, absolutely. I got to change this because this keyboard part is just begging me to add this to it instead of what I got, you know? And, and sometimes it's just another layer. Sometimes it's just like, oh, you know what? I want to add one more thing now that this is in there because I can accent that or enhance it or counterbalance it. Actually, I added a solo at the end of uh, Suburban Mist. You guys haven't heard it yet. Oh, so. cool. I added a solo because there was like not much going on at the end, you know. Was that that was the? I think that was the the first song I did, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. That was the one. You know, like, whoa. My my audition piece, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I only got uh, Matt, our, our ex drummer, to do one song. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to ask him for more, but when I heard you, you know, you guys are both great, you know. So well, thank uh, you very much. It, it is. It is. It's it's an honor for me to be able to work with you guys, but it means so much that the ideas that I'm coming up with are things that you feel work with the band. I mean, that's that to me as an artist is is the biggest compliment you could pay. Oh yeah, you're a great drummer. You know, thank you very very much. Well, Jerry, it has just been a, a blast talking to you, bringing up these memories and stories and everything. It's it's such a good time. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You're so very welcome. Let's do it again. Definitely. And let's uh, let's finish this album. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. Love to Michelle when, when she gets home. And uh, you guys have a great day. Too, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.